Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Tonight we pay tribute to a small town Alberta caterer, Gene Carey, who became a best selling cookbook author at the age of 53, going on to sell some 30 million copies of her 200 companies coming soon. We meet the Vancouver Grizzlies super fan and filmmaker who's combined her loves into one project called The Grizzly Truth that tries to figure out why the city's NBA franchise only survived six years before moving away. Buffalo Bills defensive back Damar Hamlin remains in critical condition in hospital in Cincinnati tonight after collapsing during a game on Monday. It has prompted a lot of questions about player safety in the National Football League, and we get an on-field perspective from a former CFL offensive lineman, Blake German. But first, we look into the suspect arrested in Pennsylvania on Friday in connection with the murders of four University of Idaho students back in November, and what we know about the 28-year-old during his PhD in criminology and what connection he could have to his alleged victims. Well, heading into this weekend, we heard of an arrest in a story that we had talked about on this show already. That was the killings, the murders of those four University of Idaho students back in November. It was a real mystery, and there was so much speculation, fear, concern in that little uh, university town of Moscow, Idaho, which is not too, too far from the Washington state border. Well, it turns out the person they arrested was in Pennsylvania, which is a long way from Idaho. 28-year-old Brian Koberger was uh, charged with first or will be charged with first-degree murder uh, by state police, where he was arrested in eastern Pennsylvania. He's the lone suspect in the deaths of those four students, Ethan Chapin, Kaylee Gonzalez, Madison Morgan, and Zena Kernado. Uh, here is Moscow, Idaho Police Chief James Fry announcing the arrest. Last night, in conjunction with the Pennsylvania State Police, the Federal Bureau of Investigation, detectives arrested 28-year-old Brian Christopher Kohlberger in Albrightsville, Pennsylvania, on a warrant for murders of Ethan, Zena, Madison, and Kaylee. Now, Koberger didn't show any emotion today when he appeared in court. He waived any opposition to an extradition from Pennsylvania to Idaho to face those charges. We don't know a whole lot about what the evidence is here because it is still sealed until he, in fact, appears. And we may learn more. But law enforcement sources have said the DNA evidence found at the murder scene was vital in tracking down Koberger. They haven't found a murder weapon. Uh, investigators also uh, searched across the U.S. for a white Hyundai Elantra spotted near the murder house. They apparently came up with a list of 22,000 possible matches before finally narrowing it down to Koberger's vehicle. He had been working as a teaching assistant in criminology, of all things, uh, at the University of Washington, or Washington State University, rather, uh, their campus not too far from Moscow, Idaho. Here is the father of Kaylee Gonsalves speaking to Good Morning America today. It definitely provided relief for uh, our family. Um, we learned uh, later at night around 1030, and um, it felt like a cloud was lifted off of us. I mean, it's like seeing sunlight after You've been stuck in a house for a month. So it definitely provided relief and comfort to know that things were progressing and uh, all this torture of waiting was, had a purpose and a meaning. And um, it, it, it was very, and it was right before her celebration of life. So that also added to, you know, knowing that millions of people have had prayers for us and 
in a bad case or a bad situation, this is one of the best ways that we could have learned. Well, joining me now is Joseph Giacolone. He's a professor at the John Jay School of Criminal Justice. He's a retired NYPD sergeant and author of the Criminal Investigative Function. Thank you for your time tonight. Thanks for having me, Ben. We followed this case a little bit. Again, geographically, Idaho is, is pretty close, obviously, to uh, to British Columbia. Uh, Washington State is as well. Uh, we followed this one. This was quite the mystery. And then the way that the the arrest was announced was also, I think, caught a lot of people off guard, just given that the suspect was all the way across the country in Pennsylvania. How did they track down a suspect in this one? Well, we're still waiting to see the probable cause affidavit, right? So what led, what evidence led the police to go to the courts, establish probable cause to get the warrant? So we need a warrant for a couple of things. We need to make an arrest. We need to get it for an arrest warrant. We need it for a search warrant. So that's the level of proof that you need to have. It's about the third uh, level of proof that you're, you're dealing with here. So we really don't know for sure. I mean, there have been things leaked out about forensic genealogy and, and, and the like. Well, I mean, I would imagine there was a lot of DNA evidence recovered from the house. I also imagine they said that I think up, upwards of 300 interviews that were conducted, couple that with, I think, 20,000 tips. We have a variety of in- intelligence and evidence, I think, that came in, video surveillance, internet records, phone records. I mean, this one is going to run the gamut, and, and it's going to be, I think it's going to be an eye-opener tomorrow when we actually hear what, what they have. Yeah, because he uh, today, the suspect, did not oppose his his extradition to Idaho. How does that work in the U.S. if you're arrested in Pennsylvania, but your charges are in another state? So we have an extradition rule, right? So you can't go into another state and pull somebody out and bring them back to your state. If you're law enforcement, right, that'd be kidnapping. So we have to if you get arrested in another state. So what happens is in order for that police department, so in this case, Pennsylvania, in order to make the arrest, they have to get an arrest warrant from Idaho court. Now, American police, we need a couple of things to do what they did. So they came in in the middle of the uh, the morning, right, the early morning hours, I think it was like 3 a.m. They need to obtain what's called a no-knock warrant and a nighttime endorsement. Those are two different things, and they don't normally come because the rules here are pretty much basic, that a search warrant can only be conducted between the hours of 6 a.m. in the morning and 9 p.m. at night. But the problem with that is there are people home, kids could be up. So it's kind of dangerous if the person is a chance of maybe destroying evidence or fighting or what have you. So they go for a, a no-knock warrant for, for that element of surprise. And they get a nighttime endorsement because think about this. We've all been awoke, uh, awakened at 3 o'clock in the morning. And you don't even know where you are at the moment. And that's the kind of condition that we want to get people in when we when we bust through the door. Tell me a bit about the suspect, Brian Koberger, because uh, clearly geographically the, he wasn't far away, but he's uh, he's a criminology student. He studied with some pretty well-known names in the criminology business. What does that uh, tell you about him? From a professor point of view and, and an author of a textbook on criminal investigations, right, this is something that you are concerned about, but it's pretty rare. Uh, the only one other case I can think of where somebody who was studying this was actually here in New York City, where we had a criminalist that was a graduate of John Jay and working in for the NYPD, and her boyfriend was John Jay student also. And when he murdered her, he tried to stage the crime scene and other things that he probably picked up here or there from his classes. It's something that you are concerned about, but it is so rare. Uh, you know, I mean, I know people brought up Ted Bundy was the same thing, right? He was, he was going to law school and doing all these other things. So. There have been a few cases, but uh, this is something that I wouldn't, uh, I'm not going to lose sleep over when I teach my classes, that's for sure. Criminology here in the United States is pretty narrowly focused, right? It's about the criminal mind, it's about psychology and sociology. 
unless under the undergraduate level, he experienced uh, what we call electives, which is classes you could take uh, that you really want to take. I mean, uh, he could have been exposed to forensics or criminal investigation. But if he is as into this as he you know, looks to be, meaning PhD program, he could have done all this on his own. We don't know. I guess we'll find out. Uh, we don't know yet if or, or what link there was potentially between the suspect and the four victims. No, we, we don't have a motive yet. We don't know what the link is yet. Uh, we don't know how they actually came upon him, per se, as the, the suspect that got the arrest warrant. Like I said earlier, I assume that it was based on maybe an interview with one of the other kids, maybe from one of the other fraternities about these parties and says, hey, you know, we have this older guy that comes every now and then. He drives a white car. You know, when that white car came out on the news, I think that that's when they finally got uh, the piece that they were looking for. From your policing days, this one looked, I mean, it, it. There was an arrest made relatively quickly, considering what a mystery it seemed to be from the outset. Uh, mm-hmm. But but it, it looked like a tough case because they didn't have a weapon. They still don't have a weapon, right? Um, and they really didn't have any idea what had happened. I was very concerned about a couple of things uh, going forward, but I did support the cops throughout the whole thing. And as a matter of fact, I did an interview like the day or two before uh, for another network. And I said that they had suspects and people said, well, how did you know that? The chief did an interview the day before, and he was like sitting back in his chair, and he was leaning back, and he didn't have any stress on his face. And I said, that is a man that has a suspect, uh, you know, ready to be arrested. Uh, he didn't look like he was, uh, you know, too concerned at that point. But, yeah, things look pretty grim. But the police keep this kind of information close to the vest. They didn't show their cards. They didn't, uh, you know, put out too much information that was would be detrimental to the investigation or at the at the at the worst you know tip off the killer so that he can get rid of evidence like the knife and the clothes you know we, we got the car right so that's a big one but i'd still like to see them get the knife and the car so for instance we have what's called the extended crime scene and and you have you have a short one and you have a really big one right so you have where the murders happened to back to his house in Pullman which I think they say is about eight or nine miles. So that entire route by now should have been searched. And they probably looked for anything that may have been thrown out the window. You know, he could have tossed a knife easily out the window if, if that was the case. But also at his complex, video surveillance. Do we have video of him, you know, parking the car, getting out of the car? What did he look like? And then, of course, you have the, the trip from Idaho, uh, you know, from Washington State, excuse me, to Pennsylvania. So that's a real long crime scene. And they'll probably be taking a look at some of the rest stops along the way. One of the things that struck me about this investigation is just the sheer amount of speculation and rumor that was swirling around that town. This must have been a really difficult one, as you mentioned uh, just before the break. This was a difficult one for the police not to say anything, and yet they seem to have managed to uh, to handle both the pressure and all the innuendo uh, and, and continue on with their work. No, I think so far this has been the largest influence I have seen come from the true crime, true crime community so far to date, right? So we've seen this happen with a few things. So we had like the Amber Heard and Johnny Depp case, right? There was a lot of social media stuff for that just because they were famous people. But this one here really took on a new meaning about uh, involvement by the general public or what we refer to as armchair detectives. Many of them in the the community, you know, wish to do good, right? So they were trying to find things out and links. But there was a number of them that did things that were counterproductive, let's put it that way. So there was somebody had made a 
a video uh, uh, and put it on the internet about a scream that was heard and you know and it ended up all being false so we saw some good we saw a lot of bad but yes the speculation and the outright beating up of law enforcement in this case was just uh unprecedented and and I, i'll tell you i gave the chief of moscow police department all the credit in the world that he kept a, uh, a stiff upper lip didn't get hooked kind of thing because you gotta remember not only did you have the moscow police department but the state police and the fbi and they were dragging everybody through the mud. They don't know what they're doing. They, you know, and everybody had this thing figured out, and everybody uh, knew who the killer was. And then, and then, boom! Somebody totally different off the radar. Nobody had him on their list, and nobody even had a clue about what was going on. So, yeah, there was a lot of what they say crow. Yeah, all day. the speculation proved to be incredibly wrong. That was the uh, it was the interesting part of it. Tell me a bit about this uh, about the genealogy aspect of this because that's been mentioned. You mentioned it earlier in terms of how they may have tracked him down. Um, the suspect was through was you know through this sort of DNA, this mitochondrial DNA that we see used in sort of these um, ancestry sites. We've seen it used in other big profile cases uh, in love late as well. Well, yeah, we don't know exactly for sure if it was done, but just quickly, uh, it is derived from mitochondrial. I always tell my students, like, just remember, M for mitochondrial, mom. It's derived from mom, right? Because you have nuclear DNA, which comes from both parents. So mitochondrial DNA is usually just a partial part of the DNA uh, chromosome that they can use to try to track somebody down. It's it's a real uh, interesting time for forensic genealogy and to help solve you know, murder cases and specifically now cold cases down the road because it opens up a whole new avenue of being of being able to identify people when you really had not much to go on. So it is kind of exciting in that in that aspect. But I would expect we'll see a lot, and you mentioned the affidavit, we're expecting to see as, as soon as he appears in an Idaho courtroom, that we will probably see a lot more than just DNA, because you I think I saw something you mentioned in another interview that, you know, just given the amount of traffic there must have been in that house, that, you know, there could be easily easy answers to why someone's DNA might be there. But oh, um, God, yeah, yeah we'll, we'll need more, we'll probably be seeing more evidence soon as to what, if any connection there was between them and what may have happened that night. Well, yes, and the, here's where the specific DNA might have been coming from, right? So when you have a violent attack like this, an up-close-and-personal attack where you're right on top of people, specifically with a knife, the, the possibility of, of the victim defending themselves, which we know at least one or two of them did, and then we know that they made a specific statement about that the hands were bagged, right? So the hands were bagged in, in brown paper to help secure any DNA evidence that might be stuck under the fingernails. So that would be another interesting aspect of this case if that's where the DNA came from, because you're dealing with a college house. You have instances where they, they showed videos where the cops are showing up at these parties and the people who live there aren't even there. So if you put a, you know, a luminol in that place and a blue light, it would look like the Milky Way, probably. So you really have a problem when you're, when you're trying to extract DNA from, from, a, from a situation like this because of all the mixtures that are in there. So it would have to be specific from one of the victims, in my, in my opinion. Uh, now, he's, uh, of course, uh, said he's not guilty. I imagine he'll be pleading not guilty. Uh, how difficult a case do you think this will be? Well, uh, you know, it's it's not unusual that somebody say I didn't do it, right? I'm not guilty, so uh, that's we're not a big surprise there. I mean, him not fighting extradition is big too, because the extradition part is just saying that I'm not the guy. But he did make another statement today, which I thought might hurt him in the long run. He said that he doesn't have any mental illness. I'm sure his attorney that's waiting for him in in Idaho is not happy about that statement. Cologne, thank you so much. Thanks for having me, Ben. This next story is about a remarkable life lived, one that uh, had many chapters, no pun intended. Jean Paré was from a small village in rural Alberta, 
And you may know her. I mean, she gained worldwide fame for her company's coming cookbook series. Uh, she passed away at the age of 95 on Christmas Eve, a sad time for any family to lose someone close to them. Uh, but it also is now an opportunity to look back at really an incredible, incredible accomplishment. Uh, she was raised in Irma, Alberta, which is about 100 kilometers east of Edmonton. And um, I mean, she built this company, helped build this company alongside her family, 200 uh, total companies coming cookbooks. Uh, and by the time she retired, an estimated 30 million had been sold back in, by 2011. Um, it is a remarkable story, no less because she released that first cookbook after spending years uh, working in food services, both as a with a restaurant and as a caterer, writing out recipes by hand. She wrote that first cookbook at the age of 53, never, never, it's never too late to do something unbelievable in life, is it not? Um, you know, they really are seen as kitchen uh, cook workbooks uh, as much as anything else. Uh, but with more now on the incredible life lived, um, Jean Paré's granddaughter, Amanda Lovig Hag, joins me. Thank you so much for your time tonight. My condolences, first and foremost. That's always a really, it's really tough to lose someone over the holidays. Oh, thank you, Ben. But what an outpouring of sympathy for for someone. I mean, I, I realize that a lot of homes, th these books put a lot of good food on a lot of tables over a lot of years. They did. Um, almost everybody I know has a story of how companies coming has affected them personally. How did it how did it begin? Because I was really I didn't know that she had started writing these books uh, later in life, right? After having a, had a really long, successful or a long career in, in food. Well, um, my grandma, as you mentioned, was a successful caterer in the town of Vermilion. And she was spending so much of her time handwriting recipes out after every event as all of her customers would come up to her and ask for the recipe of the squares that she had served or the salad or something else they'd loved that evening. And she was doing that so much that my dad said to her, you know, mom, you've got to write a cookbook. And she agreed. So my dad decided to go into business with her. He was the business side of things and she was the creative force. And like you said, at age 53, she started an entire new career. What was her reaction to the success of it? Because um, it is remarkable to, to start at 53 and then know so much success over, over, over those next decades. Oh, totally. I can't imagine it. I'm 43 now, and I can't imagine in 10 years starting a new career that could be so successful and so life-changing at that point in life. Tell me a bit about, about the theory behind um, the cookbooks themselves. I think I heard your father describe them or, or as workbooks. You know, that these, this was meant to be good food that you could make under, you know, normal circumstances in a regular kitchen. You didn't have to be a gourmet. That this was sort of practical good food that you could learn how to teach yourself to cook. Yes, that's what made companies coming recipes so successful and so relatable is that they called for common, affordable ingredients. Most of the items you either had in your home already or you could find them easily at a grocery store in any small town or, or city in Western Canada or on the prairies at the time. They also had um, a, a lay-flat binding so that the cookbook would lay flat on your kitchen counter 
which is a really important thing. If you've ever tried to cook with a fancy cookbook that you can't keep open, then you kind of try to prop it open with like soup cans and stuff while you're cooking. There's nothing more annoying. So my grandma's recipes also just worked. They were not fussy and they were just delicious and they had been tested until perfect and you could trust them. We knew um, most of the the, um, recipes also had full color photos that you could look at and the photos were always completely real. Never fake food, never touched up with hairspray or anything like that. It was uh, what you saw is what you get. Yeah, these days, you know, I I I make recipes with my phone, which is even more <laughs> ridiculous than than a cookbook. <laughs> so you can barely see what you're doing half the time. Um, I read that 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 Gene tried every one of these. That these were all Gene Paré approved. Every one of these recipes had to be tested by her before they made it into into print. Yep, that that's absolutely true. Now she did have some help with in our recipe factory in Edmonton. We had a full test kitchen where she had other employees helping her test recipes just because of the sheer volume of recipes she needed help but everything had to be tasted and approved by her what was um what were some of her favorites what were some of the things i mean everyone remembers their grandmother's cooking right i mean i remember mine and i picture food that we just don't you know unfortunately when um one of the beauties of, of your grandmother writing these cookbooks is that some of her recipes will survive when so much of that food sort of passes with the people, right? And that's one of the sad parts about losing a grandmother. So but uh, yeah, it's so true. I'm so lucky to have all of these, these memories in print in my basement and in my kitchen. I've got cookbooks all over the house because there isn't enough room to store them all in one place. Um, what were some her, of her? Yeah, sorry. Go ahead. Her favorite recipes, when asked, undoubtedly, she would always answer anything chocolate. Chocolate was her favorite food. She loved dessert and um, would always choose something chocolate if she could. I would say those were her favorites. And that's a lot of the reason that 150 Delicious Squares was her first cookbook. It was the last thing tasted. It was always the dessert final item at a catered meal and that's what people remembered first and that's why she loved desserts yeah squares i mean christmas just went by and you know obviously we don't have as many squares in my family as we did when my grandmothers were around but yeah there's nothing nothing quite beats the square it's a truly canadian kind of thing isn't it? i mean it's not but it feels like a canadian kind of thing it is squares are they're so easy they're easy to, to make they're easy to freeze to keep on hand um there's so many reasons that they're practical and they're delicious. Now, I was reading, of course, your grandmother was born in 1927, so I mean, she would have spent her childhood years through some tough times, right? The, the Depression years early and then the war years. It feels like we're heading into another kind of tough time, inflation-wise and so on. I guess um, the inspiration for what your grandmother's philosophy about cooking was in the company's uh, coming cookbooks is still very much relevant today, is it not? Yeah, absolutely. When I think of all the things she saw over 95 years, um, of course, I'm sorry that her last few years had to be the COVID experience. But at Mm -hmm. the same time, um, how amazing for her to have seen the world in in all these different stages, including a pandemic stage. Yeah. And and I guess just what some of the stuff, sort of the recipes and so on, they're, they're relevant today, too. We are sort of food is expensive. You don't want to waste. You want things yep. that are simple, reliable, that everyone will like. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, she grew up in a family that did not waste food. There wasn't the luxury of that during the Great Depression or the war years. And she was also very practical that you just don't waste things. And um, if, if you have more of something, then you share it with others. And that was especially extended to families in need. When she was growing up, they would often have other families come over for dinner. Um, my grandma was always available to help anybody who was going through a hard time with a pan of squares or a warm casserole, something for the freezer. When you looked at um, where, I mean, 30 million cookbooks is a lot of cookbooks. Have have they been sold everywhere? Have they been sold all over the world? They have been. They have been sold all over the world. Um, Of course, they were most widely available in Canada and then the U.S., but thanks to the internet, um, you know, there became a time where you could find the cookbooks anywhere. And it's amazing. Anywhere we've gone in the world, because my grandma loves to travel so much, without fail, we would always find somebody somewhere who knew of her cookbooks and had a story about where they had first come across her cookbook or her recipes. So they really did totally span the globe. And I know that she retired, I guess, about a decade ago now, right? And, and you've continued yeah. on, right? You've continued on with, with, with the, the companies coming. Uh, what's the inspiration now? I guess the inspiration is a tribute to her, but, uh, but also, I guess, the, their, the company, the, the, whole, the whole venture continues to evolve. Um, it, it does. You know, when she retired, that did change lots for the company. And Companies Coming was actually sold to Lone Pine Publishing in 2012. And so they have continued the legacy of her cookbooks, and it's a tribute to her. They have other cooks and chefs working with them who are using her as inspiration with new recipes, and we just hope the books will keep coming and live forever. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Any, any, any Any final thoughts about it? I mean, it's, it's, um, just think, just talking about it makes me want to learn. I, I, my vow this year was to learn how to bake new things, and I've never baked squares because it seemed too daunting, oh. to be honest. Oh, they're not daunting at all. You've got to try them. <laughs> if you're <laughs> going to try them, I recommend you try my grandma's. <laughs> yeah. Anyone in particular? Do you have uh, my, my grandmother used to make these dream squares with this sort of green icing that was very sweet. They were great. <laughs> they were great. Oh, gosh. I don't know those ones, but my favorite are um, butterscotch confetti squares. Oh, those sound good. There's also um, never, it's never wrong to make a good old Nanaimo bar or a brownie or a lemon square. Lots of people like a lemon square because it's a lighter, kind of fresher taste at the end of the meal. You can't go wrong. There's so many to pick from. (laughs) I guess the best place to go is right back to that first 150 squares, right? Right back to the thing that the book that started it all. Exactly. Well, Amanda, thank you so much for your time tonight. I really appreciate you sharing uh, the story of both your grandma and, uh, and the company. Oh, well, thank you. I love chatting about her. So thanks for having us. Now, in sporting terms, the existence of a pro-NBA team in Vancouver was a pretty short-lived affair, especially if you didn't live in Vancouver at the time, like myself. I lived in Montreal. We were still, we were about to watch the Expos disappear while out here in Vancouver on the West Coast, they were getting ready for the surprise departure, perhaps surprise departure of their only NBA team, the Grizzlies, after just six seasons 
They packed up and moved to Memphis. That was more than 20 years ago now, imagine. But much like the much longer-lived Expos, the loss of a pro sports franchise can leave scars on those who fell for the team and the sport. And despite winning just 100 games and losing 360 during those six years, never making the playoffs, there's still some lingering affection for the Vancouver Grizzlies and for some lingering passion. One of those diehard fans is Kat Jamie, who has leveraged her love of the Grizzlies into a filmmaking career, along with other skills, obviously. First focusing on the team's now infamous first-round draft pick in their second season, I don't get this wrong, Bryant Reeves, who you may remember as Big Country. The film was called Finding Big Country. And now a new doc called The Grizzly Truth. Here's a preview. It's now official. The Vancouver Grizzlies are in the NBA. The Grizzlies begin playing in the fall of 1995. I was just six years old when the Grizzlies came to Vancouver, and I was completely obsessed with the team. I just loved watching them win or lose. But the true story of my team remains one of basketball's greatest unsolved mysteries. How can you resist that? I never thought of the Grizzlies leaving town as a great unsolved mystery, but it certainly captures the imagination. And Kat Jamie, writer and director of The Grizzly Truth, joins me now. Thank you so much for your time. Congratulations. Thanks for having me, Ben. You know, I watched uh, it, it, your love of the Grizzlies is, is infectious, by the way. You know, one can <laughs> look at the thing, well, I wish I'd spent more time watching the Grizzlies back in Montreal. But uh, I guess that was really the reason to try and go, go and solve this mystery. This is unfinished business for you. Oh, yeah. Um, I'd say, you know, thinking about this film for over a decade, um, and it's just been a nagging thought I've had since since I was um, in film school. So, you know, I, I'm very grateful to have had the opportunity to, to tell the story. How did you set about, uh, what questions specifically did you want answered? I mean, what were the questions that have been lingering for you for years that you wanted this movie to delve into? Um, I think one of the main goals was just getting closure whatever that uh whatever that meant um and and you know i started doing research started picking up the phone calling people who worked for the organization and it was just very surprising to me to learn of a different story than what you know fans um you know just fans on the street kind of um thought um you know thought about the grizzlies and, and their version of what happened it was very different from what those who actually went through it um, experienced. So I knew that there was, because of that gap, um, I, I knew that there was, you know, a story to tell. And, you know, how do I, how do I bridge this gap to, to make fans like myself understand what really happened? And, again, most importantly, to, to give us closure. Yeah, what I, you know, your love of the team is really part of what drives it too, because I think, you know, I, I mean, I grew up a Montreal Expos fan, speaking of things that went away to other places, yeah, uh, yeah. much, much to, I mean, it was different, I guess, because as you know, I followed them when I was young and loved them in the way you love the Grizzlies. And then I got older and they got bad and they got really bad and then no one went and then they left. So it was a bit, bit of a slow, painful demise. But in your case, it really was quick. I mean, six years was a very short time to sort of get all that. I mean, they would have gotten better. I guess that's part of the sad, thing too just like the raptors did right yeah i mean that's one of the things that i i learned um in my journey is that the grizzlies were getting better every year um and it's you know it's unfortunate that that the plug was pulled you know a bit too soon six years is is not an is not a long time um especially you know when you're just starting out 
So one of the things that was interesting, and I think this was uh, came through in your Finding Big Country movie as well, is that while one may think it would be easy to track down the uh, reality, sort of the truth about a team that existed for six years, you know, up till 20 years ago, it's actually a lot harder than it looks. Like, this isn't out there to be found easily, is it? No, I mean, uh, especially, you know, all the Grizzly players live all across North America. Um, and, you know, I, I mean, prior to finding the country, I really had no connections to the NBA. I had no connections to anyone within the organization. And, you know, I, I did, you know, I want to say like over a hundred plus interviews, research interviews, anyone who had connections to the team, anyone who worked for the Grizzlies, um, you know, I wanted to speak to anyone who could tell me any information about, um, you know, the Grizzlies uh, time in Vancouver um, so yeah, it took it took a lot of sleuthing um, and uh, a lot of work to track them to track everyone down. And it what made it especially difficult was making this film during COVID. That was a that was a curveball that you know my team and I weren't expecting, um, but we we were able to uh, just kind of uh, switch gears and um, find solu- creative solutions to uh, to filming during COVID. Yeah, there's some really interesting details about how you managed to track people down. Steve Francis was one of the one of the interesting ones. I guess for people who didn't follow the Grizzly story closely, uh, in a nutshell, what was the who was the bad guy? I mean, in Montreal, there were a few, you know, there's some ownership groups that people really grew to blame for that for the Expos leaving. Um, mm-hmm. In the case of the, in the case of the Grizzlies, who was sort of the 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 bad guy, in, 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 or at least you know the sort of the fall person when when the demise of the team was concerned. Um, you know, there's there are a lot of scapegoats, right? Um, you know, finding the country kind of explores, um, you know, people finding blame in, in Bryant Reeves, and by t- I hope that you know the goal of that film is also to kind of set the record straight um, and tell Bryant's story. So you know, there's a lot of people who take you know that fans blame. So yeah, Big Country is one of them. You know, obviously Steve Francis is another. Grizzly super fans get blamed. Sue Jackson gets blamed. Um, and, you know, through my research, through talking to everyone, it's not, I, I, I've come to realize that it's not just one thing or one person. It was a culmination of so, like, everything that could go wrong for the Grizzlies went wrong. Um, you know, there was NBA lockouts. There was, a, you know, the weak Canadian dollar. You know, there were, um, you know, back then, no one really, like, players didn't know where Vancouver was or what it was all about. So um, so that was another factor that we kind of had to battle um, against. And so, yeah, so, you know, I just, I just think it's just a series of, unfortunately, like a series of unfortunate events that led to the Vancouver Grizzlies um, leaving town. Sometimes it's difficult to dig into the past. Like it's sometimes it's easier just to have your own conception of why they left without actually going to dig into it. Were you happy with what you found? Did you, did it, did it, did you walk away with some closure once you'd finished? Definitely. I mean, I don't want to give any spoilers, but I just, nope. I, you know, yeah. I go, I do end up going to Memphis, which is a place I never, ever, ever in a million right. years thought I'd go. Um, and I, you know, I learn a lot while I'm there and I grow from, you know, going to Memphis and meeting the super fans um, who love the Grizzlies um, just as much as I do. Yeah, the NBA is a weird league that way because, as you point out, there are no Grizzlies in Memphis, right? Yeah. So you, and like, yeah. there's not much jazz in Utah either. Right? No lakes so, in LA. Yeah, 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 yeah. Just another another part of that that legend of where did that team actually actually come from? Uh, when you when you, I mean, I, I gather from reading about your interviews with Steve Francis and so on that 
people still had a lot of fond memories of those brief years, though. Like playing in Vancouver when they got here wasn't uh, turned out to be a place they kind of liked. I mean, all the players, like I have stories of like, um, you know, was it the Utah Jazz? Like, I think the Utah, Utah Jazz uh, went fishing one time when they were here. Like a lot, like a lot of the players loved coming here. Um, and in fact, you know, every every Vancouver Grizzly player that I interviewed at some point during our our you know hangout or interview, they'd be like, "Cat, like, get me back there. Like, how can you get me back there?" Um, so no, I and there's some players who even like said that they they want to reti- like you know after they'd like to retire in Vancouver. So I think you know Vancouver. Um, was a great city, a great, uh, sorry, a great NBA city. And, you know, I, I am hopeful that the NBA will return to uh, to Vancouver one day. We talked a bit, Kat, earlier about uh, about why there were many different, I guess there really wasn't a, a scapegoat here. You said it was a perfect storm of stuff. Uh, the lockout didn't help, right, too? I mean, there was a whole bunch of things going on. I mean, Seattle lost their team, right? And they were booming at mm-hmm. the time. Yeah, I mean, and Seattle was a team that had, you know, they had, that team had so much more history than we did it and their team left. It, it seems really unfortunate, the Pacific Northwest. We have the Kraken and the Canucks now, but we don't have a basketball team up here anymore. Yeah, hopefully. I mean, I'm hopeful that Seattle will get a team soon now that they have a new stadium. Um, and, you know, hopefully when that ha- after that happens, uh, Vancouver, I know Las Vegas is also, you know, on the list of cities who is crying for a team. But uh, again, I, I, I do think that um, or I do hope that Vancouver gets gets another shot at the NBA. What was it about your memories? I mean, you think back to those times, and I guess you went back to see the Grizzlies in Memphis as well. I mean, did it bring back any memories of what you liked about going to games when you were younger? Well, yeah, of course. You know, going to Memphis, uh, it was an emotional trip for sure. I just brought, brought back lots of memories, you know, going to games with my dad and my grandfather, uh, my family. Um, and, you know, the NBA does such a great job. Um, uh, entertaining it's um the you know people who go watch games and th- and that was the really big thing here in Vancouver is that you know we weren't the greatest team but it didn't matter because games were just so much fun um the Grizz organ the Vancouver Grizz organization did such a fantastic job that the game operations team every game you know you would leave feeling like you got your money's worth regardless of what the scoreboard said at the end of the day what do you think it was? I mean, I remember being in Toronto when the Raptors were first around, working there, um, and that you know the uh, the Raptors really appealed to a whole you know to a newer Toronto than the Leafs did. You know, the Leafs have been around forever, and they had their fans. It was hard to get tickets. It was hard to get in. The Raptors sort of came along and 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 charged charged the city in a, in a different way, and they attracted different fans. And it was there were more kids there, and it was younger, and it was kind of cooler in a lot of ways. We saw it when they won, how it was sort of. A different, a different Toronto that then had gone to the Leafs for all those years. Was it the same in Vancouver? Did you have a very different vibe at, at a Grizzlies game than you would say at a Canucks game? Oh yeah, for sure. Um, you know, I think just by you know, like bas- watching basketball games is just such a different experience. You know, um, players aren't wearing um, uniforms that right. hide their face. They're not wearing helmets, um, so you can you really get to see you know, an athlete and, and see like all their emotions. Um, and, you know, Grizzlies games, again, were just so much fun. Exactly. You know, how you described the Raptors games, those were, that's what it was like going to Grizzlies games. Um, it was a family event. Tickets were, were uh, very affordable. Um, and, you know, 
And especially, I know the Grizzlies, um, you know, when the team wasn't being that well, um, you know, they would give tickets out too to, uh, to students, you know, to kids um, um, who right. might not be able to afford going to a game. And they really um, take it upon themselves to invite and include the, the community. Um, and so that's why there's a bunch of Vancouver Grizzly fans like myself, you know, who, you know, we might be like in our, our 30s um, right now. And we all just fell in love with the team when they were here. I've noticed when I go to Vancouver, even here in Victoria, where I am, you do see a lot more Grizzlies stuff than mm-hmm. you did 10, 10, 15 years ago, right after they, you know, in the days after they left. You see a lot more. And you do see kids wearing Grizzly stuff that looks like they're way too young to have ever seen the Grizzlies. <laughs> Yeah, for sure. Grizzlies merchandise, I'd say, is like been such a hot ticket item now. Um, and, you know, prices for vintage Grizzly stuff has uh, gone through the roof. Um, it is sort of the in thing to wear Vancouver Grizzlies gear now. How's the reaction been to the film? It's been out for a while now, back uh, since the since the early uh, or late summer, I guess, or at least early, early fall. What's the reaction been like to yeah. it? Yeah, we... Um, been really really special um we premiered at the vancouver international film festival uh we just finished our canadian theatrical release um come january 10th um you can you can pre-order the film on itunes cineplex and apple tv um and on january 10th we're going to be on a few more platforms as well um and so yeah you know check our website follow us on instagram just to get all the details um and because, you know, I, I, I definitely want as many Vancouver Grizzly fans to, to watch the film and to be able to feel the same pleasure that, that I feel after, you know, having gone through the experience of making the film. What was it like then? Because you made Find a Big Country and then you made this one. I, I guess this is, I, I don't know, this must be, as a filmmaker at least, I, I imagine you might have told your Grizzly story. What to, what next? Oh, yeah. Um I yeah I have a bunch of a bunch of stories that I that I'm currently working on. Um, one of them is about the Game Seven Vancouver hockey riot. Oh wow! I'm also uh, working on a documentary about Christine Sinclair. Um, so yeah, there's a, there's a few projects that uh, that I'm currently working on. A few projects that I'm developing, um, and you know the Grizzlies um, the Grizzlies story for now at least will be put to rest. <laughs> I spent. Uh, the past few years working on, on telling the story of the Grizzlies, and I had such an absolute blast doing that. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's, it's just working on uh, – there, there are many more stories I'd like to tell in my career and in my life. Yeah, we are off to a great start. Uh, I guess the other ones won't involve you digging through your cupboard, though, which is always the great best way to – when you, uh, in the beginning of finding Big Country, you, you dig through yeah. your closet and take out all your, your grizzly swag from back in the day. That's uh, uh, what are the, uh, Do you think there's more of a recognition in Vancouver now about the Grizzlies' history? I mean, I, there's one scene in Finding Big Country where you go to the BC uh, mm. Sports Hall of Fame, and there's like a, bas- a basketball there, too. Mm-hmm. You know, the sort of – the team that never was. I mean – and I, I, you know, I, I unfortunately, um, no, I, no, no, sorry. Yes, the, the definitely, I feel like there's definitely like a lot of love um, for the Grizzlies, you know, even more now, especially after finding a country, hopefully after the Grizzly truth. I think a lot of fans came out of the woodwork um, after finding a country um, came out. And that's why in the Grizzly truth, um, I'm joined by a bunch of other super fans who kind of set me off um, before I take you know before i go off on my journey and they share with me who they think i should track down and the theories that they 
you know, the reasons why they believe the team left Vancouver. Um, and, and so, yeah, so, the, you know, again, I, I'm, I'm definitely not the only one. There's so many diehard Vancouver Grizzly fans out there um, who, who still, who still miss the team and stu- still hope for the day like myself when the NBA uh, will come back to Vancouver. And it is, in fact, a mystery. So I'll suggest to listeners that uh, that you watch it. It's called The Grizzly Truth. Kat, Jamie, thank you so much. Uh, look forward to your next project. And again, congratulations on this one. Thank you so much, Ben. Thanks for having me. It was a really anticipated game last night in Cincinnati between the Bengals and the Buffalo Bills, two of the best teams in football. And everything was going as things do in football games when in an instant it all stopped. Uh, DeMar Hamlin, he's a defensive back with the Bills, uh, had just completed what looked like a pretty routine tackle when he collapsed. No one really knew what had happened. It looked serious. It looked very serious. Uh, He was resuscitated, we believe, on the field and again uh, afterwards. He's in critical condition today. Um, His heart stopped, apparently. We don't know why. Uh, but it really was one of those moments when you're watching, and this happened, you know, you're watching live sport on TV. Um, things happen in real time, including things uh, that are distressing. It was distressing for everyone there. It was certainly distressing for the players. It took about 20 minutes of treatment on the field uh, before he was taken to hospital. Um, they say his heartbeat, again, his heartbeat again was restored on the field. He's at uh, UC Medical Center's uh, in Cincinnati for further testing and treatment now. He was surrounded by teammates after being hit uh, while tackling Bengals receiver T. Higgins. Uh, ESPN's Lisa Salters was outside the Bills' locker room as that decision was finally made last night to suspend the game for the night. Bengals players in, in still full uniform were coming to the Bills locker room. Bills players started to come out and they were hugging and shaking hands and you could hear players saying, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Joe Burrow came back here. Josh Allen, they, they shared a big hug and Joe Burrow walked away looking devastated. So it doesn't really matter whose team DeMar Hamlin plays for. These players were all unified in the trauma and just the worry and the emotion that they were all feeling. Now, there's been some criticism today of just how long it took for that game to be called off for good. There's also been lots of talk about what could have happened. Cardiac specialists who've been interviewed by multiple media organizations say it's too soon to know what went wrong. Uh, They're looking at perhaps something called commotion cordis or commotio cordis, uh, which is a cardiac concussion as one potential uh, culprit here. But uh, still, they don't really know. Perhaps hit just in the very right, wrong spot. Moments before could have caused trouble, you know, a blow that with sufficient velocity and power in the right place. Uh, we just don't know. But so many questions about what happened. We thought perhaps the most interesting way to look at this would be through the eyes of someone who stood on a field just like that one. Blake Dermott was a CFL offensive lineman who played 14 seasons with the Edmonton Elks. He is now a game analyst for 630 Ched. He was on five, played in five Grey Cups, won two of them in 87 and 93. Blake, thank you so much for your time tonight. What a... Uh, what a really disturbing incident it was to see and then to see repeated today. Well, Ben, that was a, a really nice uh, a summary that you just did of what happened. Um, <clears throat> yeah, it was, uh, uh, I don't know how you describe it any, any uh, differently than shocking. Um, the, uh, the situation is, is that uh, we all um, guys who played, um, you know, right in high school or, uh, college and, and of course at the ultimately pro, um, 
understand the risks. Um, but when I say that, no one's ever seen um, you know, all the years that I played. That was the first time I ever saw anything like that. And, uh, you know, I've been around football now for a better part of uh, 40 years uh, or better, and I've never seen that. So when you say you understand the risks, you can say that, but you, you've never witnessed. Uh, I, I had an opportunity to witness something that uh, was was life threatening um, in a game, and I believe it was uh, um, it was in 1986. I believe um, uh, we had a player on our team named James Bell, and uh, we were playing in BC Place, and I'll, I'll never forget it. Uh, James, uh, similar type of a play, went up to make a play, and uh, and, uh, and uh, he was tackling. I believe it was Jan Carinci. And uh, a currency was sandwiched between two of our players and James Bell's neck took the brunt of it and was paralyzed and the game was stopped. And uh, it, it's really hard to describe how difficult it is to continue when you see a teammate could have been their player. When you see a, a human being get injured so seriously that it's life threatening, um, whatever, training you've done and believe me these guys have uh, guys that play football at the professional level are trained and trained to, to forget the play go on to the next go on to the next I mean you have to you have that's the way you have to play but when you see something like that you uh, it's very difficult to go on to the next play yeah I believe James Bell rehabilitated right I don't think he played again but he did manage to 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 walk again and and, and or at least with a cane at one point it, just to follow up on that story from back in the in the mid 80s um certainly obviously in this case hoping for a similar quick recovery the reaction of the players was something that i think was really touched a lot of people as well because i think sometimes you know we forget in the emotion of the game fans forget that there's a real camaraderie amongst the players too even though they're they're busy competing at the end of the day they're all brothers in arms in some to some extent we saw that last night yeah, no, I, I think that uh, because every guy that's on the field has has gone through the same thing that the other guy has gone through. You know, the 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 hardships of of training camp, of two a days, of of the risk of injuries and and rehabilitating from injuries, and uh, it's it's traumatic. I I suffered a couple of uh, major injuries in my career, and and it is traumatic when you get injured. Now, of course, none of them were life threatening, but 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 you 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 that that brotherhood feeling that you have because. Because the guy that you're playing across from, the respect that you have for those guys, um, uh, is is something that you, is learned because they've they've had to endure the same things that you've had to endure. Now and now, when you see uh, a player, whether it be an uh, opponent or a teammate, in a in a situation like they were in, it's not surprising to me um, that uh, there would have been some some uh, you know some shared hugs and shared you know uh, um, apologies and 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 whatnot, and and that's what makes it so difficult to be able to move on to uh, to play continue to play when something like that happens you know you've seen the game from both uh, the field and the broadcast booth now uh, one of the things about live sports it really reminded me of when Christian Eriksen the the Danish soccer player collapsed during a game a few years back um, that live sport when you're you know it, it brings these moments of, of what really distressing moments and then they're live right so people who are broadcasting as they were last night um what did you think of how that was handled it was it was obviously a situation you would have thought there might be a contingency plan in a sport where there are often quite serious injuries but clearly in this case there was very little they they could do to plan for this 
Well, you know, initially, uh, when it first happened, of course, you know, being involved in in games where there's been delays because of lightning or injuries or things like that. I mean, the, the, my immediate thought was, because I, I didn't know how seriously he was injured. It wasn't for a few minutes till we understood that, that it was, it was serious. But my first thought was, boy, these guys are going to have to fill. They're going to have to, you know, they're going to have to talk and they're going to have to come up with things and, 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 and how difficult that can be in broadcasting when you've got, you know, you, you don't want dead air. But then, then once I think it was realized how serious it was, it, it, there was, there was honest periods of time in the broadcast where nobody knew what to say because you couldn't, how many times can you say how, how awful this is? How many, like what new thinking as, as, as a professional add to what the viewers are, are, uh, are looking at. And uh, I just think it would have been very difficult on everybody involved because as you mentioned, you know, you're, you're witnessing something, something that was, tragic um in in real time i mean let's let's think about and this is the thing that uh, that uh, demar will be you know first things first i mean you're 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 injured but you're thinking oh my god i hope my career is not over and, and that's something that maybe some people don't understand but i mean that's the first thought that you come in it comes into your head this is a guy who's only in his second year he's worked his whole life for this dream and then he's thinking oh god i hope it's not over but then you know, as as you start to think about how, as 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 we all hope that he progresses and and gets better, that that it 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 becomes a blessing that he was able to survive something like this, and and that's, uh, um, you know, that's such that's part of the shock and part of the getting over the shock, and and uh, you know, just looking at some of the reports, the the family was in in good spirits today, so I mean, nobody's really saying a whole lot, but they, they Demar's in, in in critical still, uh, but but the family seemed to be in better spirit. So obviously there must be some progression or at least they, they, they don't feel at this time that it has gotten any worse. Well, I know neither of us are doctors, but they certainly had a lot of medical help readily available. I mean, one can only imagine that his life was probably saved on that field by the quick actions of the people who were there to do just that, probably not never expecting to have to do that on a football field, but did yesterday. Yeah, no, I, I think that's, that's one of the things about professional sports over the last 15 to 20 years that the the support that is there for for the athletes uh, on the field you know i mean most of these facilities have x-ray machines right in the building they they have uh, uh, both teams uh, travel with doctors uh, more than one and uh, training staff that's trained as like almost paramedics right so so uh he yes lucky if this was 25 years ago maybe not so lucky um this but uh, and I'm, I'm just glad that it's progressed to that point. I mean, these are these are human beings and um, we always want them. To, we want them to perform and we want them to be successful as, as a fan and we want to cheer for them. But we also want them to be safe at the end of the day. The NFL has come under a lot of criticism this year for around player safety and years past as well. Um, is it a fair assessment? Do you think the NFL really doesn't at least doesn't show enough concern for player safety? Well, I, I never played in that league. Uh, let me just preface this by saying that. Um, and um, it, would it? Um, it doesn't surprise me that the items like player safety can get lost when you're talking about a multi-billion-dollar corporation. Um, you know, uh, players are assets, um, and uh, assets it can be very important. But uh, but there are so many other players that aren't playing in that league that the thought can be well assets are replaceable 
Um, I, I, I hate to think that way, but um, it's, it, you know, perception is reality, I guess. Uh, with respect to um, player safety in this game and why the de- decision to, to, um, um, uh, to call the game took so long, I, I mean, I, I want to turn this around. I mean, at the end of the day, the right decision was made. Um, did it did it hurt anything to wait until they had all of the answers? Because believe me, you, you, when you've got uh, stuff going on in the field like that, the people that were decision makers were probably getting reports, four or five different reports from different people, and I think they wanted to make sure that they had the proper clarity. Um, and in, in in our world, I, I I almost get really tired of people that are quick to just jump on and blame people for things now. I'm not saying that the NFL is blameless in a lot of things that have happened over the years and continue to happen, obviously, uh, with the, uh, uh, the quarterback situation in, in, uh, in Miami. Yeah, uh, with Tua. But, uh, but I just think that uh, at the end of the day, the right decision was made, and, and people got to get over that. I mean, the, the, uh, they're going to have to look at a bunch of different things. Like what? Okay, honestly. The difference between this one and Tua was that, um, and, and according to all reports, the, the, the he had gone through protocol and everything else, okay? And he was cleared. So um, he, he played. This thing was an instantaneous accident on a play that was probably, if you took, uh, you know, 60 offensive plays, uh, 60 defensive, 120 plays in that game, this probably would have been ranked as a in in the top they're in the bottom ten with respect to violence. This was an odd play. Like I, I don't know what it was a freak thing, and we we don't even know exactly other than the direct blow to the to the heart muscle, uh, which probably could have caused this, as you called it, a, a heart concussion, and uh, and and that's happened before in sports. So like to, to put blame on somebody, why are we looking to blame? We're just looking to make sure that this player. It gets looked yeah. after and gets the proper support that he needs. I should mention when Christian Eriksen, the Danish uh, footballer, collapsed on the field, he was revived. Um, they played. They 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 continued that game. They, you know, FIFA came under a lot of criticism for that, but they did complete the game later in the day. So this is not, you know, these things don't happen in vacuums. This is just a. What what about? I mean, just in terms of where do we go from here? It feels like you know. I imagine we'll be playing football again on Sunday. Uh, I, I I expect, uh, but it's a tough one. I mean, it's tough. The players must think about these things. It must put things into perspective for everyone who plays the game, who's played the game. Yeah, you know, the, I, I once heard this analogy, and this may not be a great analogy, but they said professional athletes almost have to have um, no conscience when they play. And when I say that is they, they can't think about, they have to play within the moment to be the best athlete. You can only think about the moment. You can't think about, well, if I do this or don't do that, and that you've got to be in the moment. And, uh, and so when you've got something like this that happens, it's fresh in your mind, it's, it makes it even more difficult for guys to be in the moment. And if you're not in the moment and if you're not completely concentrating, then that's when you get hurt. So, I mean, these guys have been, as I said, they're, they, they're well-trained. They've been, they, uh, uh, you know, it's taken a long time for them to get to this point. So they, I, I think that the players can do that, but as soon as the game's over, they can reflect on what's happened. Uh, and, and, you know, uh, believe me, when I was playing, I, I didn't, you know, I, people always say, hey, do you want to go water skiing in the summer or, or you know, do you want to go skiing? And 
I was afraid of those events. I was afraid of those kinds of things because I didn't want to get hurt. And they said, well, look what you do for a living, you know. You, yeah. You're running into that. Yeah, and, but I was trained for that. Oh. I felt like I was in control in that situation. And, uh, and, and these athletes are well-trained and controlled. And when, when they're in control of those things, um, I don't think that the fear is there like other people might think. Blake, thank you so much for your time tonight. I appreciate it. Ben, thanks for having me on. 